Hello again, and welcome to Three Worlds Podcast, Series 3, Episode 7. Going to talk some more about Tibetan things today. Going to look at uh, more on the Buddhist side, but I dare say we'll wander into other areas too. Um, But the Buddhist side is not going to be about monastic stuff. It's going to be fringe and wild and... uh, yeah, kind of uh, crazy wisdom Buddhism, I guess, perhaps in some ways. That's a that's a form of Buddhism found in Tibet. You had these kind of um, rather dirty, long-haired, shabbily dressed yogis that wandered about the place. Uh, there's a wonderful kind of whole kind of tradition of stories about them. They were kind of considered to be mad people, outcasts, vagabonds, dreadful people. And they would kind of wander about the place and perform miracles, basically. Do all sorts of uh, astonishing things, which used to irritate all of the kind of monastic, by-the-rules type Buddhists. I'm a bad Buddhist. I always kind of say I'm a bad Buddhist. Uh, people sometimes ask me what it means and basically for me being a bad Buddhist is being a bit like a hedge Buddhist like you might get a hedge witch you know Um, I can't be doing with all of the wordiness of Buddhism Buddhism especially well I guess all Buddhism but Tibetan Buddhism really loves its jargon and I can't get my head around it and it also likes all its set practices where you kind of read the prayers out from a book and you do everything by the book no thank you that's not for me at all so I'm a bad Buddhist because I refuse to do all of the kind of cant and rules and all of the stuff and I don't learn all the jargon I have this love-hate relationship with Buddhism I really do love it and I love all the ritual objects and all of that kind of stuff and then I go on a Buddhist retreat and after a few hours I think what the bloody hell am I doing here I can't stand it I let me out I've got to get away I've got to go and make a free-form offering to the spirits I've got to sit and sing without knowing what the words are going to be next and ah yeah, I always feel like a kind of a fly, you know, it's like I'm uh, I'm banging my head on the window, I'm always, or a cat, perhaps that's an even better way, I think cats are more cuddly than flies, I'm a cat, I'm always in the wrong room, sitting by the door, waiting to go through, wanting somebody to open the door for me, <laughs> so I'm a bad Buddhist, I really can't be doing with all that kind of by the rules set formulas, which drives me nuts, um, And I do find Buddhism very in its head, and I'm not an in its head person. I like facts. You probably noticed I like facts. I'm stuffed with facts about shamanism and this, that and the other, but that's different. You know, when I'm doing practice, I don't want to be in my head. I want to be in my heart, and I want to be with the spirits, and I want to be in the spontaneous moment. And I find... An awful lot of Buddhist stuff is so not like that. It is so rule-bound. Anyway, I've rambled on enough. You've got the gist. You know that I'm a bad Buddhist. You know that I can't be doing with all that headology. So what can I be doing with? What does a bad Buddhist do? 
Well, this bad Buddhist does daily practice, does meditation practice, and works with some of the Tibetan beings, which, as a bad Buddhist, I consider to have their own identity, their own kind of uh, reality. You know, they're not just kind of intellectual constructs, which some Buddhist traditions will have. Me, I think of them as spirits, external to me. So I work with those. And uh, and I do Buddhist practices, but I don't do them by the book. I do them as it feels right in the moment, like somebody doing shamanic work would. You know, it's like shamanic work is direct with the source. That's something that I've, I've heard very often. It's like a shaman goes to the source and a Buddhist generally doesn't go to the source. They go to the guidebook and that's very different. But... A lot of the stuff in the guidebook, I find very helpful as a pointer to help me get to the source. So I work with the, the, the different spirits in the Tibetan pantheon in fairly traditional Tibetan ways, but not absolutely by the book. Um, yeah, what do I do? Okay, well, I do meditation practice. I do mantras. I do all of those sorts of things. I do certain rituals with purbas and with flaying knives, kriguk, as they're called. Uh, they're kind of like um, curved, almost crescent moon-shaped knives with a vajra handle, very much uh, held uh, in the hands of Dakinis, and we'll come to Dakinis later. They're, they're female practitioners or female spirits. So I do those sorts of things. I do set practices around some forms of uh, exorcism, for want of a better way of putting it, and some healing things. I work very much, as I think I said last time, kind of in a Nagpa-like tradition. So a Nagpa is a non-monastic practitioner. And uh, like I said last time, they're not shamans. That's not to say that I don't do shamanism, but I also do Nagpaism, for want of a better way of putting it. And um, my shamanism kind of informs me how to do the work, what to do with the work, how to be with the spirits. I always think of it as a bit like drawing, you know, some people will go to art school and they will do absolutely by the book drawing and and they can be really good at it and they can produce wonderful, wonderful things. And then other people will have a go at uh, drawing, but they won't kind of know any of the rules. And nine times out of ten, what they draw will be bloody awful. But people who have learned the rules, they can kind of then throw the rules out. I always think it's really important to learn the rules of shamanism or of any tradition, because once you've learned the rules, you kind of know how to bend the rules or, you know, you know enough of the deep structure, the deep structure. I've talked before, I think, in podcasts about the deep structure and the surface structure, the bones and the flesh. It's like you've got to know the bones before you can alter the flesh or work with the flesh. If you just try and do the flesh, it doesn't work because you don't understand it. And that's actually the same in drawing. If you're doing figure drawing and you don't know how somebody's put together, you can't draw them very well. You have to know the bones. 
So for me, all the shamanic stuff that I've done over the decades has taught me about how to approach the spirits, work with the spirits, connect with the spirits, kind of sense what the spirits want. And that's been the bones of the practice. So when I approach things with my kind of Tibetan hat on, um, I do work with some of the bones of Tibetan traditions, of course, but I also feel connected to the bones because of my shamanic tradition work, whatever I've done, you know, all the bits and pieces in the past. And that enables me to kind of um, not follow the rules in quite the same way because I'm following the bones rather than following the flesh. It's like the lots of traditions have lots of flesh. You can think of them as superstition too. It's lots and lots of superstition in the flesh, the way you have to do this, the way you have to do that. Um, but if you know about the bones, you can actually ignore that superstition and what you do will be congruent, it will be appropriate, it will be sacred, it will be honouring, it will work because you kind of know how the whole thing is put together. So for me that's a very way, very important way of, of, of kind of operating and it's very much the approach that I take to Buddhism. Not entirely, but very much. So a Nagpa will start off, or a even a monastic person, but anybody doing Buddhism will start off with a preliminary practice. They will, first of all, take refuge. Now, if you're born in Tibet, you would have kind of automatically have taken refuge, in effect, because you'd have been born into a Buddhist culture. But we in the West don't do that. We kind of have to uh, sort of officially take refuge which means to officially become a buddhist so when you take refuge you kind of accept buddhism as a spiritual discipline and you take refuge in three things you take refuge in the buddha the dharma and the sangha now the buddha for me is padmasambhava who is the first shaman figure and he is considered to be the tantric buddha the dharma is the teachings. So you take refuge in the Buddha, you take refuge in the teachings of the Buddha, and you take refuge in the Sangha, which is the community of practitioners, which I think is a lovely, lovely idea. I mean, we are all part of a shamanic Sangha. You listening to this are part of the, of the community of people worldwide that are interested in shamanism. And we all have different ways of doing it, and we all have different teachers and different traditions and paths and whatever, and different spirits that we work with. But we're all members of that sangha we're all brothers and sisters in that in in buddhism you kind of think of it as vajra brothers or vajra sisters uh that's a kind of you know bit of a western term but but it it, it sort of stems from a tibetan term too vajra being the thunderbolt that's uh, the male principle held in conjunction with the bell in you know you've you've seen those kind of um, bells and and dorjes is the Tibetan word. So you're you're all dorje brothers and sisters in the shamanic sangha, and uh, being a Buddhist, I have a kind of Buddhist sangha too. Um, although being a bad Buddhist, I don't tend to associate much with a lot of them. <laughs> oh, Kobamaya. Um So, uh, yeah, so I took refuge in, in Padmasambhava. I recognised Padmasambhava as being a 
authentic teacher, an authentic presence in the world, an authentic spirit, an authentic lineage being. Like I say, he's considered to be the, 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 the lineage sort of founder of, of Tibetan shamanism. He isn't, of course, as I said last time, because shamanism in Tibet is far older than Padmasambhava, but he is considered that. And so I took refuge in him, I took refuge in the teachings, and I took refuge in the Sangha and became a Buddhist. Um, that's basically all you have to do to become a Buddhist. And then you get given a preliminary practice, which is the kind of, it's the practice that, that you cut your teeth on. And it's generally a fairly easy practice and it's generally a peaceful practice with a peaceful spirit rather than some great grrr, wrathful thing with fangs and blood-soaked accessories. Um, for me, it was, it was Padmasambhava and his consort, uh, brackets, spiritual wife, uh, close brackets, Yeshi Sogyal. And so for that, I did uh, Padmasambhava practice, which was basically visualizing myself as Padmasambhava and saying his mantra. Now, that's, that's quite an interesting kind of concept, and it, it is touching in on trance, because you visualize yourself as these beings with a degree of Vajra pride, which is the kind of belief, understanding that even if you think you're being crap at doing the practice, you assume that you're doing it perfectly. So you become... Patmasambhava, or you become Yeshi Sogyal, or whoever your sort of beginning practice being is, so that that being's energy can kind of supersede your own, so that you kind of transform yourself into that being. And you say the mantra and you visualize yourself. You maybe hold some of the ritual objects that uh, Padmasambhava would hold. You sit in the same kind of bodily position and you become Padmasambhava. And the aim is that then that becomes your secondary nature or your, I guess in a way, your primary nature. And so you operate in the world as Padmasambhava. Um, that's the kind of the goal, because the, in Buddhism, everybody is considered to be a Buddha. Everybody is a Padmasambhava. So what you're doing by kind of accessing that quality by meditation is that you're kind of helping yourself to remember and shred away all of the sort of uh, obscurities. That, that's not the right word. Obscurations. That's right. Obscurations from... Um, from yourself so that you remember that you are a Buddha or you are a Padmasambhava or whatever so that you can kind of operate like that in the world. That's the policy. That's that's what you're after. So that's your beginning practice. And I did that for kind of, I don't know, 20 years or something. Mantras, not as often as I should have done, but uh, quite often. And you build up a certain kind of resonance with these mantras, which are like magic spells. Mantras are magic spells. And and you say them, as you say them so much, you kind of vibrate with them. They, they, they start to affect you. 
a little bit like sympathetic strings. Now, uh, you're probably familiar with the sound of a sitar. A sitar has main strings which you play, like a guitar has main strings, but it also has lots of what are called sympathetic strings, which you don't actually touch with your fingers, but the vibrations of the main strings make the sympathetic strings resonate, sound, buzz. And that is what gives a sitar and other instruments like that its unique sound. It's the sound of all those sympathetic strings vibrating as well as the main string, which is the thing you're plucking. Mantras do that. Mantras kind of, they make your body resonate with the kind of the, the, the note of the mantra so that gradually you tune yourself to the mantra. They really do have a profound effect. And um, when you sort of said them for, a, you know, half a million times or whatever, then you, they become incredibly familiar to you and you do just immediately uh, sort of settle down into them and something happens because you are attuned to them. I guess is a good enough way of putting it, you know, especially in relation to using a, a sitar as a metaphor. So uh, my sympathetic strings are kind of more in tune now to the mantra than they were sort of, you know, 25 years ago when I first started doing it. And then when you've done a preliminary practice, you do another practice. You're kind of given other practices to do, and they are one's more specific to you as a personality type, and they were, may well be wrathful practices, or they may not be if you're not a sort of a being that works with wrathful things, but you'll be given extras, and they're the kind of the next level up. So you work with these other beings. So a Nagpa will start off doing all of these preliminary things, and in some traditions, they will do all of those before they take vows to become a Nagpa. And in other traditions, they're considered to be Nagpas right from the very start, because anybody that is doing Tibetan tantric practice that isn't a monk is by default a Nagpa. Not all traditions see it like that, but, but it, is, it can be argued that that's the case. So a Nagpa will work to become these beings. Now, they may be beings that uh, are specific for specific kind of actions. They, you know, almost like patron saints in, in the kind of good old Catholic sense. It's like certain spirits have certain qualities and are kind of responsible for certain things. For instance, there's a, a Dakini figure. Now, I'll talk again about Dakinis later. I don't want to kind of preempt that. But there's a Dakini figure called Sengi Dongma, uh, Simamuka, lion-headed Dakini. I think I talked about her last time, maybe, if my memory serves me right. She's very good at sending back curses and sending back um, kind of energy, grib, unpleasantness, pollutions that people pick up. And a lot of women work with her in particular, and she's very good for kind of women's work because women in our culture pick up so much crap because of the patriarchal and, and chauvinistic quality of our culture. So Sengi Dongma is very, very good for that. So a, a Buddhist who worked with her may do it 
to uh, a sort of form of self-healing for yeah it's like they're kind of doing it so that um, they're removing the grip or they're asking Sengi Dongma to, to remove the grip the, the pollution or they may do the practice for somebody else that requires that so you become these beings and the beings act through you so let's let's give an example that I do. I do do Sengi Dongma practice, but uh, a practice that I do rather a lot is uh, a, a being called Guru Dragpo. Now, Guru Dragpo is a being that is uh, a manifestation of Padmasambhava. Padmasambhava has different manifestations. Some of them are very much kind of human looking. Some of them are not very human looking. This is a not very human looking. Guru Dragpo has no legs, but he has the blade of a Purba dagger from the waist down. His uh, Purba is stabbing two provoking spirits, which are a class of spirits called a Gelpo. They are unpleasant spirits which provoke anxiety and are not, not very nice spirits at all. So his bottom half is a is a dagger stabbing to the ground, sticking into the ground through the corpse of two Galpo spirits. His upper body is sort of vaguely human, but he holds a scorpion in his one hand and a thunderbolt in his other hand. He has a shield on his chest with mantras written on it. Out of the top of his head, a horse's head emerges and that horse's head screams, and the scream shatters illusion. So I received the initiation, the proper Tibetan initiation, to do this practice. So I have authority to do it, and I become, I visualize myself as Guru Dragpo, and I say the mantra, and I hold ritual objects in my hands, and I entrance, and it's sort of similar to a shamanic trance, but not quite. I go into that trance state and I become Guru Dragpa. And as Guru Dragpa, I work to do whatever is needed. Mostly, like I say, it's to do with pinning down hostile, provoking spirits, which is a kind of a bit of a form of exorcism in a way. It's it's binding spirits it's stabbing them so that they can't uh, they can't do mischief so that that is a is a way of, uh, of of doing practice and it's done deliberately it's done sitting in my shrine room um i'm consciously doing the practice i have other things to do i have to have kind of like mantras running around me in a circle on the ground a little bit like kind of I always think of it as a bit like a model railway with these mantras in Tibetan script kind of rushing round and round and round and uh, as I do it I do kind of feel that I become Guru Dragpo and kind of the reality of the of the room kind of fades away a little bit and, and sometimes I will be in in a kind of almost like being in a tanker painting it's it's a strange kind of hard to describe um and and my emotional state changes I become incredibly wrathful compassionately wrathful I'm not trying to kind of out for vengeance or anything but I am very 
single-pointed and gruff and direct and it's it's an overshadowing energetic presence that comes over me so nagpas work with those sorts of things and they do lots and lots of different practices around which are not in that trance state they may be um are you familiar with the idea of god's eyes weavings um um, it's hard to describe them. They're like sticks of wood in a cross shape with threads running around them. Um, they're called thread crosses. That's another way of putting it. And uh, Nagpas do a lot of work with those. And they're to do with the elements. They're to do with the elements of, of, a, of a place, of a person, balancing the elements. It's a little bit like a Tibetan form of medicine wheel work. And there's lots and lots of other ceremonies and other rituals that Nagpas do. Um, incredible different number, and each of them will specialise in different things. You know, I've got a few that I specialise in, and proper Nagpas, I don't consider myself to be a proper Nagpa, really. Um, the proper Nagpas will have a huge repertoire of things like that which they work on and work with. So that's sort of what, differentiates a nagpa to a shaman but but the nagpa practices also will be done in a monastery just to confuse things even more the big difference between a monastery and uh, a nagpa or a monk and a nagpa is that nagpas can marry nagpas live in the community like I said last time, they'll often be associated with a village. They'll be the village, kind of, a bit like the village priest. Um, and, and they will be, you know, married with children. And like I also said, it's very often, or used to be traditionally very often, that the son would become the next Nagpa. So it became a kind of family business. Very much to do with magic. Very much to do with ritual. Not so much to do with trance, except when they arise as a being. That's the technical term for it. When I do a practice, I arise as a being. So I might arise as Padmasambhava, or I might arise as Guru Dragpa, or I might arise as Simamukha. So you arise as these beings. So that's the kind of nearest it comes to trance. Um, they don't tend to have their own spirits that they work with. Uh, like uh, especially like core shamanism where all the kind of spirits are a bit unique and everybody has their own there are cultural spirits which some nagpas work with that will only be with a few people like perhaps a, a local mountain spirit or a uh, you know rather than a big national kind of buddhist spirit but they don't have their own individual ones in the same way that that shamans do not like kind of helper spirits they make offerings to the local spirits, to the local land spirits and, and the Buddhist spirits as well. They kind of keep the peace in sort of similar ways to a shaman. You know, a shaman is very much there in some respects to um, be a bridge between the people and the sacred and to kind of keep the peace and to keep the balance. And Nagpas very much do that too. Um, they will work with weather, like I said last time, and they will do all the exorcisms and healings and this, that and the other. Um, they will work with uh, Dakinis. Now, I haven't spoken a lot about Dakinis, but I've mentioned them a few times. So let's talk about Dakinis for a little while. So a Dakini 
that's the Sanskrit name, or a Kandro, that's the uh, Tibetan name, is a female spirit, and they're very much connected to wisdom. They are thought of often as a bit like fairies. They can be sort of visualised as being quite small. For instance, Nagpas generally have a vow that they never cut their hair, and they never cut their hair so that the Dakinis can live in their hair and whisper to them. And Nagpas very often will sit on tiger rugs, or more historically, tiger skins, and the Dakinis are attracted to the tiger skins or the tiger rugs and come around the practitioner and whisper. And the Dakinis whisper wisdom. They are... Mm, they are kind of like the teachers of the practitioners in some respects. Tibet is a very strange culture. They pay an incredible amount of respect to women on a kind of spiritual level. On a physical level, it wasn't like that at all very often. It was a very chauvinistic culture. But women, female spirits, are considered to be very, very important. It's like with the bell and the dorje. The bell being female and the dorje being male, the female is perfect. You never clean or polish a Tibetan bell because it is female and it is perfect. And Takinis are like this. They are these incredible female beings that are kind of one step ahead of all the male beings and, uh, and teach the male practitioners. And, uh, you know, they, and so they're incredibly important. It's like, you know, they, they, they will crop up in so many things. They will reveal secret teachings to practitioners. They will reveal hidden treasures, uh, hidden ritual objects, all sorts of things like that to the practitioners. And yet, of course, the reality was, like I said, women in Tibet were treated very badly and uh, nuns never got the same kind of um, degree of, uh, of of kind of ability to practice or or whatever that uh, a monk would. So it was a, it was a strange dichotomy there. But a dakini is a female being, often enlightened, but not always. Um, in Tibet, there are kind of degrees of 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 beings some beings are enlightened and some beings are called worldly you get worldly spirits and enlightened spirits so some spirits that are worldly are to do with the world and they're not necessarily buddhist and they may not necessarily be kind um, they may be kind but they may not be because they're worldly they haven't got the kind of awareness that a buddha has and the same is, you know, with Dakinis. Some Dakinis are, are enlightened and some Dakinis are worldly. And they can be a bit sprite-like, very much like fairies in many ways. Some women uh, are said to be Dakinis manifested and uh, Nagpas will very often seek um, a Dakini woman to be their wife. Um... There, uh, there's a term called sag, sagyung, sagyom, which uh, is, is basically it's the spiritual wife. It's the wife of a Dakini. It's the wife of a Nagpa, sorry. And um, the, uh, the, the, this, this woman is considered to be a Dakini and will 
kind of empower the man, empower the male practitioner. Same thing happens in monasteries sometimes. Monks sometimes will actually be instructed to take a female partner and women will also be instructed to take a male partner. And these are considered to be dakinis or pawo. Pawo is the uh, kind of male equivalent. So a woman, a nun, might be instructed to take a powwow, which is a kind of a spiritual um, catalyst, a catalyst through sexuality. And a nun may be instructed to take a dakini, a kandro, who will become their catalyst. So Nagpas very much work with these dakinis, and the dakinis are catalysts to... Uh, to the male practitioners, I think we've done enough. It's it's uh, this this will go on and on. I got other things that I could talk about, and maybe I think maybe we do a third one on Tibet because uh, there's some stuff about uh, dakinis that I'd like to talk about, and I'd like to talk about some of the healing and exorcism practices, and I'd like to talk about turtons and the whole thing about treasure, sacred treasure. Terma, uh, which is uh, a really interesting thing. Um, but we've run out of time. I'm late, in fact. We've gone over. So, everybody, put your things away. Quick, quick, tidy up. It's time to go. <laughs> so, um, thank you for listening. I hope it's been interesting. Come back next time. We'll ramble on some more. Um, the Three Worlds website is number three worlds.co.uk sacred hoop magazine i've just issued issue 110 that's got a lot of tibetan stuff in it and also some stuff about practices like meditation and things uh you can get that from sacredhoop.org forward slash offer if you want a cheap uh, or a lower cost subscription so uh, sacredhoop.org forward slash offer dot html my email nick at sacredhoop.org and i'm going to shut up now because i've talked enough all right see you next time bye bye